Well, it's good to be with you again uh, up here in Aberdeen and to share the platform with our brother Bert. I always have memories of him as I looked out of Fasco when I was at the Tayside camp and Bert was often there um, as a leader and thought that we had perhaps the most highly qualified janitor ever to work anywhere and as Bert was picking up all the cans and rubbish round about Fasco. So it's always good to be with him, and I I do appreciate his ministry. Now we're going to turn to the book of Acts, please, and read a verse or two in chapter 2. And then we're just really going to use this as a kind of launch-off pad and go to other scriptures, because the subject I want to speak to you about is fellowship. These are subjects I've been speaking to the Bible class about back home in Bridge of Weir and I want to bring them to you. So the first subject is fellowship this afternoon and then I want to speak to you about the breaking of bread uh, later on. So let's just read what are probably familiar verses to most of us. So Acts chapter 2 verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptised and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now we trust that God will bless his word as we've read it together and as we consider it uh, together this afternoon. When you think of fellowship, then perhaps you would have thoughts that are more to do with membership than what the Bible speaks about when it uses the word fellowship. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've done it once or twice, which is you, well I've done it often, you've overeaten, particularly at Christmas time, and New Year time comes and you've sat in the conferences and all the rest of it, and then you think, right, this is it, I'm going to lose weight, and you go and you join a gym. I can see that all of you go to the gym regularly, that's obvious, and we join the gym, or some of us have joined the gym, or whatever we join, and then we foolishly pay for a year's subscription, and we never go to the gym after about a fortnight, and then you've got a membership that runs for a year, and you don't use the facilities, you don't darken the door, you don't get any benefit from it. But you've paid your dues, so you're a member of that gym, or whatever illustration we can use. When you think about fellowship in a local church, then that is not the concept that the Bible speaks about. It is not that concept of membership. And if we view an assembly, a local church, in that way, then perhaps we will fall into the trap of getting no benefit from it, no input into it, and also just treat it as you would treat some sort of organisation that you have signed up to and are on a register. 
Now, fellowship in a local assembly is very, very different. And I want to speak about that this afternoon and show what the scripture does say about it and the richness of what is in scripture about this subject of fellowship. Now, many of you are in fellowship in an assembly. Some of you, particularly some of you younger ones, may not yet be in fellowship in an assembly. So whether you are or whether you're not, then I trust this might be helpful to us as we consider what the Bible speaks about with the word fellowship. Now what does the word mean? Well we've read one usage of it in Acts chapter 2 and the word refers, if you were to look up a dictionary you would see this, it refers to, and I'll quote, a mutual sharing or common interest in something. It's used of sharing a truth, or sharing a burden, or sharing a bond, or a joy, or a provision, or a responsibility. So it has to do with sharing. It has to do with common interest. Christians are called many things in the Bible, and the word fellow is used in relation to some of them. For example, Christians are called fellow citizens. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 and that indicates a common interest, the same homeland if you like, and our interest in that and our connection in that context. We're called fellow disciples in John chapter 11 and verse 16 because we follow the same master. There's our connection as fellow disciples. There's our bond, there is our sharing. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6 we are called fellow heirs. Because we have the same inheritance. That's our bond, that's our point of sharing in that context. Third John verse 8, we are fellow helpers in relation to the truth. Fellow labourers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2 in relation to the gospel. And we've heard a little about that already. Fellow labourers in the gospel. There is our sharing, there is our commonality in that context. Philippians 2 verse 25, we're described as fellow soldiers because we oppose the same enemy. Fellow workers in Colossians 4.11, we seek the same kingdom. It's a study in itself, and it's a good study to do, is to take up that idea of fellow, whatever, and see where our commonality is, where our sharing, where our partnerships are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the basic concept of fellowship. Now, when you think about membership, the Bible does use that analogy in relation to the body of Christ. Now, there is a difference between the body of Christ, the church which is his body, and a local church. Some of you may not know this, and let me just point this out to you in case you've never heard this before. When you become a Christian, you are immediately and automatically part of what is called in the Bible the body of Christ. And that is every single Christian, no matter of locality, of creed, background, uh, race, language, or even when that person lived, following the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the descent of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2, From that period right through history until this period, this moment in time. And it will continue until the Lord Jesus returns in rapture to remove the church away from earth to heaven. Every single Christian in that period of history 
is part of what the Bible calls the body of Christ, the church which is his body. And membership is used in relation to that, as being members of that body. For example, Romans 12 verse 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27 says this, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. So the word member, or the concept of membership, is relevant in relation to the body of Christ. It's compulsory. There's no option. It's immediate and it's permanent for every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 4 to 6 says this, There is one body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One body of Christ, Every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a member of that body. And the the body analogy is the reason why the member word is, is used. So let me just summarize that. When a person is saved, they become a member of the body of Christ. And to flow out of that, because we are united, that is our point of unification, our point of sharing, our point of fellowship, if you like then every single person who is a member of the body of Christ is therefore qualified to be part of a fellowship of believers, a local church, which is the local expression of that great entity called the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is represented in a community at any given point in time by local Christians who gather together in a local church. Now that's a very important point. In order to be part of a local church, you require to be part of the body of Christ. You require to be a Christian. Because you cannot express that unity and fellowship and membership locally if it doesn't exist. So then, those who are in local church fellowship share this basic point above all other points. They are united in Christ. They are Christians. You cannot be part of a local church biblically unless you are that, a Christian. So fellowship demands salvation. Demands membership of the body of Christ. So then when you come to church fellowship, that's membership in relation to the body of Christ. But when you come to the concept of fellowship, fellowship in a local church is not based on race. It's not based on personal preferences. It's not based on social status or any other human criteria. But it is fundamentally based in our common life in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why, for example... Let me just give you an illustration from Sri Lanka, which is that when you go to Sri Lanka, there are um, racial divisions in that country, significant racial divisions in that country. But when you go to the local assembly in Colombo, which is the capital, you'll find this, that that assembly is not divided on the basis of race. It's not just one side of the racial divide that's found in that assembly. 
In fact, it was one of the great testimonies during the, the war years in Sri Lanka that you could go and you could be in fellowship with people who were Tamil and Singhala and English speaking, even though there was a war going on in the same country based on these racial grounds. So that a local assembly is not just an assembly with people who speak one language or people who have one skin colour or people who've got one background or whatever it may be. An assembly transcends that because these divisions don't exist in the body of Christ. So they shouldn't exist in the local expression of that body. Now that is a very important truth. So that if people come from different places and all the rest of it, it's a wonderful testimony to the body of Christ that a local church fellowship consists of people of different backgrounds and so forth. All gathering together as a local fellowship. Now some Christians do not feel the need to join themselves to a local church and rather attend local churches, perhaps even more than one. But that isn't a biblical concept. Now it's very uh, prevalent in city life. People kind of float between churches and they'll go in a morning somewhere and an afternoon somewhere else and an evening somewhere else. And there is no commitment to it, nor is there any integration in a local church fellowship. Now that doesn't square with what the Bible teaches. For example, when in Acts chapter 9 and verse 26, the Apostle Paul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to, and the New American Standard puts it this way, he was trying to associate with the disciples. Now they were afraid of him, and no wonder. And they didn't even know if he was a Christian. They didn't believe he was a Christian. So they distanced themselves from him. But his desire when he came to Jerusalem was to associate with the disciples. Now there is also the other truths of scripture which demand that in order to be fulfilled we be part of a local fellowship. We do as local believers in a community require to be under godly shepherds who care for us as those who are part of the flock over the which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. We need mutual care. As believers, we need to be taught. We need the interaction of Christian uh, fellowship and opportunities that a biblical local church provide. It is for our benefit and for our growth, and it is the context in which God would have us live our Christian lives out in our locality. Now then, let me just address this. Which is that there is no explicit command in the Bible that I can find, no command, to formally associate or join yourself to a local church in the New Testament. Now why is that? I want to suggest that there are four reasons why there is an inherent assumption of church fellowship for every single Christian. There is an assumption in the New Testament that a Christian will be in a local church, a local assembly. Now the four points are these. You have the example of the early church, that's number one. Number two, the existence of church government. Number three, the exercise of church discipline. And number four, the exhortation to mutual edification. Now we'll go through these with the rest of the time this afternoon. And these 
points establish this assumption that we ought to be part of a local church fellowship and give an idea of what that actually entails. So number one, the example of the early church. Now in the early church, when you read about it in the book of Acts, you discover this, that if you came to Christ, it was the same as coming to the church. You did not, as you read through it, come to Christ and then disassociate yourself from the Christians. But coming to Christ was coming to the church. You didn't divide the two. For the idea of experiencing salvation without belonging thereafter to a local church doesn't exist in the Bible. It's foreign in terms of the narrative of what took place in these assemblies. We've read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. They that gladly received his word were baptised, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now that's right at the beginning. And there you have in Jerusalem many souls saved, and they're not just cast adrift or wander about the place, or go their own separate ways and have their own ideas about things, but rather this, they are added to the existing group of Christians that were there in Jerusalem. The new converts are added to the existing ones. But in the, not just addition, there was then continuation, and we've read that in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly. So there was addition and then continuation. So the Christians were added to the existing group of Christians in Jerusalem, and they continued with them steadfastly in what we know as the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. So then, when you begin to read through Acts, that's the beginning, and you discover this, that the epistles of the New Testament were written to churches. Now, these are very basic points, but just, just think about this. Paul writes to churches. He doesn't write to random groups of Christians. He writes to organised entities with structure and administration and accountability, and all that was apostolic in its teaching. When he does write to individuals such as Philemon, Timothy and Titus, these individuals were been written to in terms of their church involvement and the impact of their personal issues on the local churches. So the New Testament is written as a history of the churches and of instruction to the churches and to individuals who were part of churches and how this would impact the churches. You cannot read through the New Testament without coming repeatedly against this basic truth. Christians were part, actively, of local church fellowship. Again, in, you find this, that when believers moved from one area to another then often the church that he left would communicate with a church in the area to which he went. And they did so by letter. Sometimes people are quite stressed about emails arriving and things like this. The point is not the mode of communication. The point is that communication is made. And the communication would come from one church to another church because this person was leaving that area, coming to another area, and the assumption is this person will want to be part of a local church in that new area because that is the norm in the Bible. So, for example, in Acts chapter 18 and verse 27, it says this, And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote... 
exhorting the disciples to receive him who when he was come helped them much which had believed through grace. Colossians 4 verse 10 Aristarchus my fellow prisoner saluted to you and Marcus sister son to Barnabas touching whom you receive commandments if he come unto you receive him. Now underlying that is the basic principle that people did not leave one area and then go into a vacuum. The assumption is that you would be in a local church, if at all possible, in your area, and if your circumstances of life moved you to another area, then you would go into a local church in that area into which you arrive. The basic assumption of church fellowship. And it's the example of the early church. In fact, when you read through the book of Acts, much of the language of Acts deals with the concept of church fellowship. For example, chapter 6, verse 5 speaks about the whole congregation. Chapter 8, verse 1, the church in Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verse 26, the disciples in Jerusalem. Chapter 14, verse 23, in every church. Chapter 15, verse 17, the whole church. Ephesians 20, verse 17 speaks about the elders of the church. All of that language assumes church fellowship. For Christians. Then secondly, there is the issue, not just of the example of the early church, but also the principle of church government demands that Christians be part of a local assembly. The consistent pattern throughout the New Testament is that a local church will be um, overseen by a group, a plurality of elders and these elders are not accountable to the church they're accountable to a far greater authority than the church they're accountable to Christ himself as the chief shepherd they're under shepherds serving Christ and will give an account to Christ in a coming day that is an onerous responsibility for anyone who has that role in a local church and the tendency and I am a local church elder the tendency is to focus um, on being accountable to people and forget about the accountability to the Lord which is the far weightier matter that should bear upon us elders therefore are responsible and have duties given in scripture um, to shepherd a clearly defined group of people not just a random group of temporary people who pass through but a clearly defined group of individuals who are under their care and are their responsibility and for whom an account will be given in a coming day. But for that to be the case, and for all the instruction about church government, there requires to be a commitment to church fellowship by believers. A clearly defined group. For elders are responsible for many things. Let me give you five of them. Number one, to shepherd God's people. 1 Peter 5 verse 2, Acts 20 verse 28. To labour diligently among them. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. To have charge over them. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.12. 1 Timothy 5.17. To keep watch over their souls. Hebrews 13 verse 17. And here's the one I think that would trouble most elders to give an account to God 
for those who are given to our care and charge. Hebrews 13 verse 17, 1 Peter 5 verse 3. A weighty burden. Now these responsibilities in the Bible can only be discharged by elders if people are part of church fellowship. Therefore there is an assumption in scripture because of the teaching regarding church government that church fellowship is a necessity and an assumption for believers. And these responsibilities cannot be discharged unless there is a distinguishable, mutually understood fellowship in a local church. For example, elders can only shepherd the people and give an account to God for the spiritual well-being of people if they know who they are. Someone wrote this, the elders of a church are not responsible for the spiritual well-being of every individual who visits the church or who attends sporadically beyond the normal care expected of one Christian to another. Rather, they are primarily responsible to shepherd those who have submitted themselves to their care and authority as local assembly elders. And I don't think about that, and I think that does stand up to the test of Scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, in Bridge of Weir, I do not have a duty of care as an elder to people who come and go amongst us in the same way as I do to those who are part of the local church fellowship. My duty of care towards people who come amongst us irregularly or occasionally is the same as I would have to you. I ought to behave towards them as a Christian ought to behave and in a Christian fashion, etc., etc. But you know, those who, who, who I am responsible to shepherd for, I've got to go way beyond that as an elder. Way beyond that. And the people in the assembly, wherever you are, your accountability and, and your response to these elders goes way beyond your accountability and response to other Christians. And that teaching is throughout the New Testament, and in order for it to be implemented, church fellowship must be a reality. You must be in fellowship. Christians are responsible. Listen to some texts which we are responsible to discharge and implement. And if you are not in fellowship in a local assembly, you cannot obey these scriptures. You cannot. Hebrews 13 verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. If you're not in fellowship, you cannot implement that text. Hebrews 13 verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy, and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And it said, so it goes on. 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labourer is worthy of his reward. Against, not an, er- against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now these scriptures cannot be obeyed, and many others, unless you are under the authority and care of elders. 
church government demands church fellowship. Thirdly, church discipline. It's interesting, isn't it, that the first mention of a local church in the New Testament is in the context of what we now call dispute resolution. I can remember, I don't, he is known up here, I keep forgetting that he's known up here, um, Alan Christie from Grangemouth. I remember he's changed his job now, but he had the most wonderful job title in the local council, and I'm sure he'll forgive me for saying this, um, that I've ever heard for uh, an elder. He was the dispute resolution manager in the local council, which I thought was a perfect qualification for being a local church elder. But church discipline requires church fellowship. Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 17 teaches us, and it's the Lord's teaching, that there was a structure taught by him to resolve disputes between believers. And disputes between believers arise all the time. All the time. Verse 15 of Matthew 18 says that when a brother sins, he's to be confronted privately by a single individual. So there's that private uh, discussion that takes place. If he refuses to repent, that individual is to take one or two other believers along and to face him up with the issue in front of witnesses. And again, if the sinning brother refuses to listen to the two or three, verse 17 says, then it's to be told to the church. And if there's no repentance, the final step is to put that person outside of the church because they're behaving as if they're not a true believer. And the exercise of that church discipline according to Matthew 18 and other passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Titus chapter 3 presupposes that the elders of a church know who are in fellowship. So the whole concept of church discipline requires church fellowship. Now the fourth one is mutual edification. Mutual edification. So then, here are the four bases of the assumption of church fellowship. That Christians will be in fellowship in a local church with each other. Number one, you've got the example of the early church. Number two, the principles of church government. Number three, the exercise of church discipline. But also, the fourth one now is the exhortation to mutual edification. You know, Scripture exhorts all believers... To edify each other. And one of the great ways of looking at the Bible in this connection is to look for the one another's. One another's of the New Testament. There's loads of them. And these one another's are practiced in the context of a local church. And when you read about them, for example, here are some of them. Colossians chapter 3 verse 13. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Galatians 6 verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So there's a whole concept of forgiveness and forbearance and there's a whole concept as well of bearing one another's burdens and we might hear a bit about that later from what Bert was saying. And then there's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Hebrews 10.25 Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approach. 
One more, Romans 14, verse 19. Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. And what Scripture teaches right throughout these New Testament epistles is the effect that we can have upon each other for good if we are in close relationship with each other. And many of these scriptures cannot be implemented in our life if we lead isolated lives, lives at a distance, and lives not connected with other Christians. So, for example, here's someone who gets saved, and they get baptised, and they, they attend a church, whatever church it is. And they have an association, a loose kind of association with people and they're friendly enough and they work socially with some of the people. Perhaps some of you young folk will know about this sort of thing. And there's a kind of social circle where people from all sorts of churches meet and mingle and kind of go and visit various churches depending on who's speaking and what's going on. And there's no commitment to any single local church. What you then find is this, that when everything is great and life is, life is easy, that's a very comfortable way to live. No responsibility. No accountability. No one's asking you because there's no one who's caring for your soul in the way an elder should do. So no one's asking you of a Sunday where you were reading this week and, you know, not a big official interview, but there's not that conversation that takes place in that context. And there's no sense of accountability to, to anyone, no moderation of conduct or life or, or anything like that because you're part of a fellowship and are accountable to elders who are watching for you and who, who are keeping an eye on you. And then you don't have that relationship with other Christians where you are in relationship, in fellowship with each other. So there isn't the, the forgiveness and the forbearance and the exhortations that exist in relationship. You know what it's like, you know, in a family context, how often you have to say sorry, how often you have to forgive, because these are the things of relationship. And church fellowship is that you're in relationship with other believers, you've got commonality and purpose, you're under the sphere of church government, and you are living your life for Christ in relationship with other people. So then these scriptures come to bear. Exhort one another, edify, build each other up, help each other, get involved in each other's lives for the benefit. Get to know each other so you can love each other, not at a distance, but rather in close proximity. You will be taught patience in abundance. If you're part of a local church fellowship, you will have your character refined by having to be in relationship with people of different personality and character and you will have the edges knocked off or ought to have the edges knocked off and that's all part of that growing process. Learning to accommodate other people. Learning to live with other people. who just don't see exactly the same things as you see, perhaps. And that, the one another's in Scripture, allow us to bring mutual edification to bear upon our lives it's an important aspect of being a Christian when you think about the Lord Jesus I find it interesting when you see the pattern of what he did with his disciples and how he shepherded them and cared for them 
And he chose quite an eclectic group of men. I mean, you would never have thrown them together for any other purpose. So they were from different social strata, wealth backgrounds. They were from different cultural backgrounds, really. In fact, some of them would have been actively antagonistic to each other if they weren't Christians due to their political leanings. So you're different politics, different backgrounds, different social strata and wealth. And the Lord Jesus brings them all together into one group. And then they travel together for three years. Now, don't mind me saying, it's one thing being a good friend with someone, the test of that is if you go on holiday with them. And if your friendship survives a holiday, maybe even a caravan holiday, if it survives a holiday, then it's true friendship. Being in close proximity with other people is not easy. The Lord Jesus brought these men together and he taught them and he trained them and he matured them and part of that was their relationships with each other, not just with him. So it is in a local church fellowship a local assembly that we are brought together and part of our maturing process part of our growth as a Christian is our relationships with the other Christians and the things that we need to learn through these relationships for our own spiritual good and welfare and so church fellowship is necessary for mutual edification in a way that you cannot experience unless you are committed to each other and are in true fellowship with each other. We're going to see later, and I don't have much more to say to you on this subject now, we're going to see later that the Lord's Supper is a wonderful expression of that fellowship. Not just with the Lord, but with each other. And we're going to see that that is in the context of this expression of the body of Christ in a locality. And there's one way that it's displayed. That beautiful expression of fellowship. When you come, and let me just finish with this, when you come to uh, an example in scripture of mutual edification and fellowship, I don't think there's a better assembly to point you to than the assembly in Philippi. And when you read through the epistle, and I'll just point out some of these texts and then I'll sit down. When you read through the epistle, you find this, there is much spoken about in relation to their fellowship with each other. And it seems to me that, unlike some businesses where you've got sleeping partners who may draw out a share of profits but actually make no um, day-to-day input into the business, an assembly's not like that and Philippi wasn't like that. There was no sleeping partners. They were all active. They were all involved in their different ways and in their different capacities and capabilities that God had given them. They were making a contribution. And that was an expression of their fellowship because they were sharing in these various things. What did they share in? Well, they shared in their salvation. And let me reiterate that. You find this in Philippians 1 verse 7. He speaks about being partakers of grace, of my grace. Speaking about the whole range of spiritual blessings that Paul had that they all shared together. Now here is one thing that's beautiful about fellowship in a local assembly. We are all partakers of the same grace. There's no hierarchy of spiritual blessing. 
There's no one who's received more from God than the next person of anything. We are equally blessed of God, but we are differently blessed of God in our lives. But God has given us the same spiritual blessings to the same extent, bar none. And in our life, in terms of health, and in terms of wealth, and in terms of family, and in terms of employment, and in terms of whatever, we are equally blessed of God, but we are differently blessed of God for our own benefit and spiritual welfare. When we see it from the divine's perspective. He says we are all partakers of grace. But then they were also expressing their fellowship in the gospel. We've heard about that. A very weighty word from a brother on that. But Philippians 1 verse 5. He thanks them for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Sharers in the gospel. They were in fellowship with each other. Philippians 4 verse 3, he says this, I entreat the also true yoke fellow, help those women which laboured with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow labourers whose names are in the book of life. And there Paul is speaking about their fellowship in the gospel and their fellow labour together. So they shared the same grace and they were involved in the same work. Again, in different ways. The same work. True fellowship. But then Paul spoke about fellowship of suffering. And he spoke about in relation to the Lord. He says that I may know him in chapter 3 and verse 10. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable unto his death. And it's evident that the Philippians felt it when Paul suffered. And there was a connection in suffering between them. And that ought to be true as well in a local assembly. You know, there's never, I don't think, a time when there are not people in your assembly suffering in some way. And as Christians, one of the beautiful things about fellowship together is the sharing, not just of work, but the sharing of suffering. And then, as we've heard already, in Philippians 4 verse 14, there was the sharing of their substance. So there was the sharing of the the blessings of salvation, the sharing of service, the sharing of suffering, and the, the, the sharing of their substance. He says, notwithstanding you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. They shared amongst themselves what they had. And I think, to be honest with you, by and large, Christians are very good at that. I really do. I think it's always amazing that you can virtually go to any country in the world. And if you look for them, you'll find believers gathering in some way, in some context, and you will experience kindness at their hand. Mm-hmm. Kindness. Not hostility, kindness. Because basically, Christians share. Basically. And I think it seems in my experience that the less Christians have, the more they share. That seems to be the way of it. And the more I have, maybe the less I share. But that's been my experience. And you can go to places where they are very little, but their first instinct as a believer, because they they are a fellow believer with you, is that they will share with you. This is Right from the beginning. This is part of fellowship. 
that we share together. We are linked together. We serve together. We suffer together. We share things together. And these are the very practical outworkings of local church fellowship. So let's ask me a question. Let, let me ask you a question. If you are not part and committed to a local assembly, why not? You miss so much. You deprive yourself of so much. And you deprive others of what you have to offer. So you diminish the assembly by not being part of it. And you also restrict yourself in what is available to you within that local church. It is designed by God in simplicity in the New Testament not to be a cage to pen us in. But rather... To be the very sphere where we can grow and serve and live and experience joy and true fellowship. That's how it's designed in the Bible. And if we are in fellowship and we perhaps have got used to it and maybe treat it with a bit of, well, a bit wazzy, let us again refresh our minds as to why we're there and what contribution we can make and what benefit we can be to others and also how we can bring glory to the Lord within the context of our local assembly. Thank you.